If Margaret Thatcher wins on Thursday, I warn you that you will be quiet. When the curfew of fear and the gibbet of unemployment makes you obedient, I warn you that you will have defense of a sort with a risk and at a price that passes all understanding. If Margaret Thatcher wins on Thursday, I warn you not to be ordinary. I warn you not to be young. I warn you not to fall ill. And I warn you not to grow old. We fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham, and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory. I understand sacrifice. Speak over. I may not get there with you. That we as a people will get to the promised land. Speak Speakola with Tony Wilson. Hello, this is the Speakola podcast and I am Tony Wilson and this is the fourth episode of 2021 and a great episode too. We haven't had many Brits on the show and certainly no Welshmen so far and today we have one of the great Welsh orators and there have been many of them, David Lloyd George, Nye Bevan, even Australian Prime Ministers Billy Hughes and Julia Gillard can claim a Welsh background. But one of the great Welsh parliamentary orators is the man that was featured there in the introduction to the show, and his name is Neil Kinnock, now Lord Kinnock. Kinnock was elected to the British Parliament in 1970, and he served as leader of the opposition from 1983 to 1992. He lost two elections, one to Margaret Thatcher, resoundingly, in 1987, and one narrowly to John Major in 1992. The I Warn You speech that was featured there at the start, that was delivered in the days before the 1983 election, before Neil Kinnock became leader of the party. And we'll talk a bit about it in the interview, but it was a fine display of oratory. Kinnock is one of the best-known opposition leaders in history, which isn't exactly the title many politicians are striving for. But his legacy was to forge a centrist path for Labor, which eventually made them electable under Tony Blair. And he went to war with the militant faction, the far-left faction of the Labor Party that were destabilising the party platform and making them unelectable. So he's a significant figure in British political history. He's also more than a significant orator. He's one of the great orators. And the feature speech is a speech he delivered at the Labor Party conference in 1985, a speech most famous for the way it directly took on the militant faction of the Labor Party. And there was a walkout by Liverpool councillors. But it's also just a generally great speech about a vision for society and the importance of democracy. So that's my special guest, Neil Kinnock, and what an honour to speak to him in lockdown over there in London. I think as his daughter did the dishes in the nearby kitchen. 
but it was a wonderful and wide-ranging interview that covered many aspects of his career, including the influence and meetings with Nye Bevan. And before I get to it, I'll just say a little promotion of Speakola. If you do want to support us, I've had some great donations, people chipping in to keep the website and the podcast going. There's a link in the notes to the podcast. There's also links on each page of the Speakola website. And I've had lovely donations from $5 to $10 to $20, $100, and even one donation of $1,000. Thank you, John Daffy, for that. It was really quite overwhelming. And if we ever have a member system here at Speakola, if I get around to doing members-only content, and that won't be the speeches, it'll be analysis of speeches. Um, Anyone who donates more than $20 will automatically qualify for membership. The other regular friend and supporter of the show is Greenskin and Purpleskin Avocados to be found at greenskinavocados.com.au and they are as passionate about avocados as I am about speaking. They've been farming avocados for more than 20 years and what they're about is creating an avocado mood. They want you to walk into the supermarket and as you enter the fruit section, it's almost as if out of the hellish fluorescent glow, a beautiful stage spotlight shines from above and captures you and an avocado together, feeling the avocado love, not pushing it on the sides where it may become bruised, but pushing it on its ripeness button, the little bit at the top which can cope with a bit of pushing. And you look at the avocado and the avocado looks at you and then you put it into your basket or your trolley and it becomes the centrepiece of your shop. Greenskinavocados.com.au Now, Neil Kinnock. Speakola. Well, we've had some wonderful guests here on the Speakola podcast. We've had stars of theatre, we've had sports stars, we've had activists, but I don't think we've had a politician as senior as the one I'm going to talk to today. He is Lord Kinnock, although he said I should call him Neil Kinnock. What a thrill. Thanks for coming on, Speakola, Neil. Great pleasure. And much easier to talk to Australia than when I used to listen at God knows what time in the morning to test matches with a barely audible commentary. It's such a leap forward. It's wonderful. So, Neil, I'll quickly delve into that because I probably spent a similar childhood listening to test matches from England. Have you got a favourite test moment in your 70-odd years of following the great game? Oh, this is... This has to go way back to my idolised batsman, the opener for Glamorgan, which is my team, of course, Gilbert Parkhouse who only got a few caps because he fell out seriously with Dennis Compton. I think there was a bit of class war at the root of it. Uh, and he, he belted Compton uh, on the tour in Australia, and I don't think he got another cap again. But he was a wonderful batsman, so I used to follow Gilbert very avidly. And I had a great honour of meeting him many, many years later when he was an old man. Uh, we recounted those times, or he recounted those times, actually, and uh, he and Compton fell out badly, and 
the retelling that was uproarious. It was great stuff. You're taking us back to your childhood there in Wales, and I actually wanted to start there because perhaps with all great speakers, there is a seed there somewhere in in the childhood. Um, who were your parents? Were they words people? I mean, what was the foundation that made you someone who would eventually be very comfortable on your feet and speaking? My mother was a district nurse, and but she was more of a kind of sheriff for half of Tredega because she was a wonderful woman, gentle, a very lovely woman. But everybody went in fear of Nurse Kinnock <laughs> in her military standard uniform, and she was ramrod straight and appeared to be very stern, even though she was immensely warm and considerate and a very profound Christian socialist. My dad was a coal miner for 27 years until the dermatitis, the industrial dermatitis on his hands uh, obliged him to leave the pit. He was a face captain, a hewer, the creme de la creme, and he loved being a coal miner. Uh, but he was forced to leave the industry in the late 1940s because of his dust allergy, which made it almost impossible for him to hold tools. And the only job that he could get with his dust allergy was in the blast furnaces in the steelworks in Ebervale, where the dust was even bloody worse <laughs> than it was underground. He said it was life's little joke. And they were, they were terrific parents. I was an only child. And not by design, they lost uh, a couple of children, uh, which was very tragic. But uh, they gave me all the love and support that anybody could dream about, really. And I was fortunate in being brought up in a working-class community with lots of mates, lots of fun, a huge amount of uh, sporting and cultural activity uh, in the community, which was typical of the South Wales Valleys at that time, so that by the time I was 15, I'd seen most of the great world opera stars and uh, concert pianists and instrumentalists because they would come to Tredega because the collective organization of the Workmen's Hall meant that they could afford to pay Covent Garden standard fees. And so on the last Sunday of every month during the winter, there was a celebrity concert. And so you'd either get a famous actor or a great opera star to perform. It was an ideal childhood, and it meant that in my pantheon of heroes, I included the wonderful gentle giant John Charles, the footballer, and Blevin Williams, and Cliff Morgan, the scrum half who later became a very, became a very close friend of mine. In that pantheon, of course, was Gilbert Parkhouse, the Glamorgan opening batsman, Jim McConnell, the spin bowler, and because I fancy myself as a spin bowler, and um, Anand in Devon, our member of parliament, who was a wonderful democratic socialist, the creator of the National Health Service, and somebody I uh, idolized, and was part of the reason for me being engaged in organized politics. My parents were both trade unionists and socialists, but they didn't join the Labour Party until my mother retired 
because she never wanted it said that any uh, preferment that she got or promotion that she got was attributable to her membership of the Labour Party. <laughs> so she, they, they joined the Labour Party the week after she retired, um, by which time I was in the process of being selected for my constituency, uh, just the next seat down the valley in, uh, in Bedwesti, which was right next to the Evervale constituency at that time. So that was my background, basically, with loving, highly articulate, very well-read, cultured, working-class parents and a family, grandparents, uncles and aunts, who, and the uncles worked in the coal mining industry. The aunts all went, went to chapel. That was the, the background. It sounds very cliched, but that was the background of millions uh, who had the great privilege of being brought up at that time. It's interesting that the working class image I get there is different to the one I get now, which is um, that if there's an education gulf that exists uh, between classes, it feels as though that there wasn't a cultural gap that was going on. It feels as though the working class in 1956 were enjoying opera and arts and not keeping up with the Kardashians or whatever the equivalent is now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, there, there was still, obviously, a glamour culture uh, from the tabloids and the films and we were fortunate in Tredegar to have lots of pretty girls who fancied themselves as Betty Grable. <laughs> that was a source of delight to me as well. In fact, for the first 15 years of my coming to adulthood life, sport, rugby and soccer and cricket, and girls, rock and roll, and politics was about the whole span of my attention. <laughs> And so was the rock star in your life, was it Nye Bevan, who for us, who I run the Speakola website here in Australia, and he's certainly a rock star in my world. I, I sort of see Nye Bevan as one of the true speaking talents of all time. Yes. Um, yeah. and, and I guess you're saying you're coming to music, I guess there's the Beatles. Were you more a Nye Bevan man or were you more a John Lennon man? Oh, no, Bevan definitely, above and beyond. Uh, I think Lennon would have said the same thing, actually, funny enough. I certainly know there are rock groups that took inspiration from Bevan. In fact, the Manic Street Preachers are from my constituency. I knew all the boys when they were growing up and presented them with prizes in their local comprehensive school. And they actually produced an album which was taken from Bevan I'll tell you my truth, uh, which was a quotation from Bevan, which shows a degree of overlapping. But I guess if I separated things out at all, it was naturally in my generation, Bill Haley and the Comets, Elvis, Little Richard, who I also met. <laughs> this, is, this is terrible name dropping. Well, Neil... With Nye Bevan, was there a speech that rang with you or that remains a significant Nye Bevan speech in your life? I mean, I've put a couple up. I, I love the the one during the Suez crisis, I think, in 1957 that he, yes. that he delivered yes. in Trafalgar Square. And there was an, another amazing one at the time the NHS was, was delivered. Do you have a favourite Nye Bevan moment? 
Oh, it's impossible to pick out uh, a single speech, especially if you become aware, and it's only available in print, of course, because there's no recording, of his speeches during the war and his critique of uh, Churchill, both in his domestic policy and, much more daringly, audaciously, with huge courage, of his conduct of the war. Uh, for different reasons, I was doing a, uh, a BBC Radio 4 programme a few months ago, and I went back over Bevan's wartime contributions, and they works of immense bravery and real genius. Um, so he earned the title from Churchill, that, that squalid nuisance, Bevan. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think you can honestly say that and accurately say that Bevan's determination to ensure that it was a people's war that ended with a people's victory and a people's peace, which inspired him right from the 1930s, um, really kept open the doors of genuine democracy, which is what people were fighting for, during those war years, because I understand the temptation and the government succumbed to it in efforts to shut down parts of the press and to illegalize strike action and then to take lots of other actions which would be associated with authoritarian governments. And due to Bevan's arguments and the support that he was able to secure from time to time, uh, even when the legislation was passed, was enacted, it was never applied yeah. so that no newspapers were shut down and strikes were illegal, but nevertheless, it didn't result in people being imprisoned. And I think that was substantially because of Bevan's application of the maxim, if we're fighting a war for democracy, it is democracy that much must win. So I, I think even apart from his achievements as health minister in uh, creating the National Health Service and as housing minister too, often forgotten, and we lived in a prefab which was the result of Bevan's success in turning tank factories into uh, manufacturing units for prefabricated housing. So we left a, a terraced house, which was crawling with bugs, spotlessly clean, because <laughs> uh, my mother was very fastidious, uh, but nevertheless uh, infested by bugs, mice and rats too. And we left that for a prefab with a bathroom, uh, an indoor toilet, a fitted kitchen with a refrigerator, or unbelievable in the late 1940s. Um, in fact, members of our family used to come around just to see the house. <laughs> we thought it was Hollywood. Uh, that was a consequence of Bevan's program as housing minister, because he was housing and health minister and local government. How the hell he managed the brief, I don't know. But anyway, I'd, I will recount, since you can edit this, if it goes on too long. One of my meetings with Bevan, 
and there were, there were four in my life. And of course, I was a kid growing up. But this one is memorable because it says a lot about Nye. Uh In the 1959 general election, uh, which turned out to be just a short time before he tragically died, I, I'd been a member of the Labour Party then for about two years, maybe a bit longer. And as I joined when I was illegitimately when I was 14 <laughs> in 1956. Anyway, the general election in 59, I was dispatched to Abergavenny in conservative Monmouthshire in order to be a bouncer at the public meeting uh, which the candidate and I were holding on the eve of poll. So I got to the market hall in Abergavenny with a couple of my mates, uh, all us rugby players. The hall was absolutely packed. And the poor candidate was very, very nervous, lovely woman called Joe Richardson. And her supporting speaker to fill in the gap while waiting for Nye was the only Labour County Councillor in the town. And the poor old sod, he was a retired railwoman, lovely man, but not a great orator, <laughs> if I put it like that. And they were in that crowd, a busting bunch of young Tories from Cardiff who heckled him unmercifully. And on the instruction of the chair, we didn't interfere with him because he didn't want a fight breaking out. So this poor old fella had difficulty with his aspirants. So every hill was an ill, and every house was an house. <laughs> and, of course, the young Tories ragged him unmercifully. Eventually, oh, an hour late, Nye turned up after this guy had been through torture for, I don't know, half an hour, 40 minutes. And I felt the door move behind me, turned around, and there was an iron heaven, face to face. <laughs> I said, hello, Mr. Bevan, I'll take you to the stage. He said, no, no, in a very thin voice, high voice. No, no, he said, uh, let me get the smell for a minute. So we waited there for a minute, two minutes at the back. He saw what was going on. He said, we'll go down now. So I took him to the stage and the chair leapt up. Friends and comrades, with no more ado, Nigel Bevan. <laughs> So, Nigel's on the stage, leans into the microphone, which was his habit, and started almost at a whisper, which was also his custom, and said, uh, friends, and I count you all as friends, I want to impart to you that uh, I don't hate all Tories as individuals. And the titter ran through the audience, as you can imagine. And they said, in fact, I have reason to know that among them are people who love their wives, who love their children, who don't kick their dogs or cats. And his voice going up a bit and more titters through the audience. So I think it can conclusively be argued that... Uh, Personal animosity is not part of my attitude towards Tories in general.
And then he leaned further in the microphone and he said, that I bloody abominate snobs. And the house came down, you know. And these young Tories at the front who'd been taking the make out of this poor old county councillor collapsed. It was absolutely superb. And he went on to make a great speech. <laughs> but I bloody abominate snobs. It was beautiful. Well, what a... What a thing to have seen him live, just to to hear it. Yep, it so you say that was yeah. one of his techniques that he went soft at the start and then got louder and louder when he needed it. You must have been absorbing this. I mean, you end up becoming a great orator yourself. Is there is there some Nibevan in you? Um, I, I don't think so. Certainly not at the outset or deliberately at any subsequent time. But I think that. A desire, very, very strong in Bevan, but common amongst a lot of uh, speakers of his generation and previous generations, was a desire to illuminate, to educate, to paint pictures with words, which ensured that people understood the argument and the passion behind the argument, the rationale behind it. Uh, Bevan never patronized his audiences. And the, the great speakers of his generation had that in common. Uh, and I've actually heard good speakers in pulpits, although I stopped going to chapel when I was about 16 or 17. I mean, I heard some bloody awful ones as well. But uh, I did hear speakers that really were reaching out and trying to get the audience to share their insights and imagination. And, and that was Bevan. And I guess, I don't know if it's by coincidence, it's certainly not by tuition. Uh, I always sought to do that because I always thought it was absolutely vital, even when it was going nationwide on television, to speak to and secure the understanding uh, and hopefully to share the motivation with the people in the room. I suppose if it's forensically examined, uh, that was nice purpose too. Jenny's wife, Jenny Lee, was also herself a terrific speaker and a wonderful woman responsible for the Open University in the United Kingdom when she was a minister in the Wilson government in the 60s. Jenny became a very good friend and... She was a very beautiful woman, elegant in all kinds of ways. She was a coal miner's daughter as well, and, and Scottish. She, she said to me that Nye started softly and slowly because he was never sure, not really sure, about where he was going to end up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I thought I'd get to the speech that we've opened this episode with, which is the I warn you speech. And, and this is the speech that was delivered, I think it was in June of 1983. It was a, it was a few months, it was a few days before the election of 1983 and a few months before you became the Labor leader. Can you give us some of the background to, the, to I warn you? How does, how does this thing happen, which, which still has a life today? It gets shared by people. It, it, it was unusual in some ways because by 1983, I had started writing a few speeches. 
I've been since 1979 the Labour Front Bench spokesman on education. And I discovered a few months into that task that if you made a speech without notes, the only thing the press was ever going to pick up was some inadequate syntax or a slip of the tongue, a statistic that was uh, in minuscule error. So I thought, okay, I'm going to have to write speeches for the first time in my life, which I started to do. By the time we get to the 1983 election, the Labour Party was in shambles, civil war shambles. The Social Democrats had split off. The campaign was a disaster. It wasn't the fault of Michael Foote. The whole party was unleadable by that time. Bloody awful. Anyway, um, I was due to make a speech in Bridgend in South Wales a couple of days before the election. And on the Tuesday, I think, before the election. And uh, unusually, while my wife, Glenys, drove me down the motorway to South Wales from London, I sat in the back of the car and wrote uh, a speech, which turned out to be the I warn you speech, which I then had to phone to my secretary in uh, Westminster, who then typed it and faxed it <laughs> to the venue in Bridgend. And by the time I, I got to the meeting that evening, half past eight or something like that, it was a beautiful summer's evening. Place was absolutely packed, and all the Labour people were by that time despairing. So I offered a few words about uh, a few uncomplimentary words about Mrs. Thatcher and her supporters, and then moved into "I warn you," and uh, and it worked. I was sort of blank verse, really, I suppose. The tragedy of the speeches that so many of the warnings proved to be justified and fulfilled. I knew they would be to some extent, but not to the appalling extent that they eventually were, including rises in child poverty, increases in crime, uh, increases in unemployment, till it nearly reached 4 million. And so I was even nearer to the truth than I intended to be. And the speech finishes, I warn you not to be ordinary, I warn you not to be young, I warn you not to fall ill, I warn you not to get old. I mean, it was it was beautiful stuff, and uh, it really just is falling out of you in, a, in the back seat of a car, is it? Yep, uh, that's... Um, it was a brand new car that I'd only picked up the previous Friday. It was a Ford car, lovely. And on July the 13th of that year, <laughs> I'm driving back from doing a leadership election hastings in South Wales, again, South Wales by coincidence, and I totally lost control of the car at uh, quite a high speed. And uh, it turned over. The police measured it. It went 60 yards through the air before landing on its roof. And I came out of it without a scratch. It was quite miraculous. And what had happened, apparently, was that this brand new car and others in the batch had the wrong tires. 
And so in particular condition uh, and at particular speeds, the steering just went completely haywire. And I hit the center of reservation, went across the motorway, fortunately at around about midnight, nothing else on the road, hit the bank, went up, turned over, landed uh, so that the petrol tank burst Ugh. and covered me with fuel <laughs> and the whole car. And miraculously, it didn't ignite. Ugh. It was wonderful. Anyway, it came out of that. That was okay. But I had to change cars because there was nothing left of the car. Oh, Neil. And that was the car in which, which I've written, I warn you. <laughs> well, we, we can't put it in the speak of museum then. Um, I read a lot of Le Carre novels. There's no chance that Margaret Thatcher was behind that one as well. <laughs> no, no, no. Even she wasn't running the production line of the Ford Motor Company. <laughs> yes. Um, do you think this speech firms you up as the most likely after Michael Foote finishes as leader? I think the day was cast rather before that because I had always been and remain on the left of democratic socialism. I, I want radical changes, and I still do, even after the advance of many decades. In fact, there are many things in the world that... Uh, make me believe that my aspirations are too modest. Anyway, in the party at the time, with a right wing and a Benite wing of ultra-leftists who always made me fume and got me into a lot of trouble way in one way and the other, um, there were us in the Tribune group, uh, in the Bevan tradition, strong supporters of Michael Foote, who really understood that we could secure change, transition to socialism only by democratic means and with the support of the British people, provided that the Labour Party could be believed in and trusted. That meant that I had quite a lot of support across the party. I'd also been extremely active in getting around trade unions. I was a very active trade unionist. So it meant that I had a very strong base in the party without much desire, without indeed any ambition to be leader because I knew it was worse than a bed of nails. It was a kind of barbed duvet, bloody awful. But it was my duty to run. And once it had been clear that I was running uh, a couple of days after the 83 election. Uh, the support came flooding in. And so uh, Roy Huddersley, who I have huge regard and respect for, a lot of affection for Roy, was always going to come second. Well, the other speech I was going to feature on this episode, Neil, is the 1985 Labor Party conference speech. And I guess to talk about that, you have to talk a little bit about 1984 because that's the year when Britain explodes with the miners' strike and picket lines and, and the stuff that people of my generation consume in movies like Brassed Off. But, you know, it was very real and I'm sure very upsetting time in the UK. Can you, can you tell us about 84 and basically the background of the 85 conference? Well, Brastoff is the lovely version of it. <laughs> and 
Pete Postlethwaite in that was magnificent. He was a damn good socialist, Pete. Uh, but that was a lovely film. Uh, but it wasn't quite like that. Just to roll it back a bit, I, I was elected as leader of the Liberal Party as the change candidate because I and people who felt like me knew that there had to be profound changes in the policies, the organization, the finances, the conduct, every damn thing of the Labour Party if we would ever stand a chance of being elected. Uh, the problem was, as I was designing and embarking on the change program, the miners totally legitimately and with my support started their work to rule in November of 1983, about seven weeks after I became leader. And the agreed stance then was to undertake the work to rule, to use the time that they weren't in work for leafleting, canvassing, campaigning in the parts of the country that weren't familiar with coal mining to show how vital the steady and dependable supply of coal was as a source of energy to the whole of the British economy and society. And so consequently, that was a strategy that I completely endorsed because the case for coal was, in practical terms, really very strong. Scargill, Arthur Scargill, the president of the NUM, a man I'd never liked or trusted, nevertheless agreed that that was the best way forward. In early 1984, the National Coal Board made a really stupid error of including on a secret list of proposed closures a pit caught in wood in the Yorkshire coalfield that wasn't even due for closure. Uh, the Corton Woodmen felt that they'd been betrayed. They came out on strike, and when the full list was leaked, the strike gradually spread pit by pit, colliery by colliery, coalfield by coalfield, across British coal mining. Scargill decided that in view of the spread of strike action, there was no need for a democratic national ballot in breach of the constitution of the National Union Mine Workers. And it meant that the strike was then conducted with cornfields divided, with Nottinghamshire largely uh, not going on strike, and bits and pieces of other cornfields not going on strike, while other cornfields threw themselves wholeheartedly into the strike. In order to try and interrupt coal supplies at several pits, Nottinghamshire pits particularly, but also at steelworks, power stations, dockyards, coke uh, works, picketing took place. And pretty naturally, when you get large numbers of men who are out of work, defending their industry, while others go past them into work, uh, there's bound to be conflict, and it can turn nasty. In some cases, though not as many as people sometimes think, uh, the 
Pigeoning was violent. In the meantime, Margaret Thatcher had prepared very well for a coal strike. First of all, coal stocks were about 25% higher in February of 1984 than they had been at any time, any comparable month, for the previous 25 years. She changed the social security laws so that the wives of strikers uh, weren't entitled to any support whatsoever. She'd adopted a national policing plan because in the United Kingdom, as you will know, we have local forces, not a national police force. Uh, but that became changed with a policing coordination plan. She'd secured the appointment of Ian McGregor, a fairly, uh, with a fairly brutal attitude towards um, industrial relations as chairman of the coal board. And in a, those and a variety of ways, uh, she'd made preparations for the strike. What she couldn't have even hoped for is that the strike would start at the end of the winter. And she certainly couldn't have hoped for the absence of a pithead ballot, because that was built in to the rules of the NUN. But without a ballot, the strike was not accepted for solidarity action by large areas of the rest of the organized British workforce. And of course, the miners were constantly subject to political attack for not having had a ballot. The strike went on for 12 months. And of course, it completely preoccupied the thinking and action of the whole labor movement. Nobody was considering policy change or reorganization or different campaigning when the miners were in struggle. Their families were being driven into destitution. I don't exaggerate at all. And mining communities were devastated. Anyway, the strike was sustained for 12 months. Amongst other things, just a minor point really in the whole scale of things, the changes that I'd intended to make at the 1984 Labour Party conference in order to attack the militant tendency, Trotskyite interest tendency that was prevalent in some parts of the United Kingdom, particularly the city of Liverpool, the intended attack simply couldn't be made because I knew that anything that I had to offer would fall, fall on, to say the least, stony ground. So I had to bide my time and sustain my patience, which, as anybody who knows me will tell you, is not my strongest feature. But I had to remain patient and wait until 1985 in order to mount the assault on, uh, on militant not only in directly challenging it politically and denouncing militant, but having the organizational means to back up that challenge and conduct a full and fair examination of evidence of militant activity and membership, which is crucial in terms of the constitution of the Labour Party, so that 
the political statement I'd made against them could be applied in practice and members of militant excluded from the Labour Party. That's the background. The minor strike made it impossible to undertake when I intended or hoped to undertake it. So I had to wait until 12 months later when the strike was over. The communities had been devastated. The government was in total control, had introduced the pit closure program savagely, which led to the eradication of coal mining in the four or five years following the strike. So that's how epic the scale of the struggle was. Its political impact was gigantic. And as I say, amongst the minor considerations was the fact that I couldn't undertake the cleansing of the Labour Party of these interests for 12 months longer than they'd hoped for. And what was it like to be the Labour leader when this is going on? I mean, you see this sort of level of suffering. What sort of state were you in in 1984? I was personally torn, of course. I supported the miners. I opposed the way in which the government proposed to go, go about pit closures. Obviously, pits close. It's an extractive industry. I'd lived with that all my life. Um, and the miners understood that themselves. But there was no preparation, no effort at cooperative examination, not even, in the end, reliance on technical expertise. Uh, it was the bluntest of blunt force instruments, and that was objectionable. But in the absence of a ballot... Support for the miners could be serially misrepresented. And, of course, I made an easy political target. I'd said right from the earliest days of the strike that there had to be a ballot. Otherwise, disaster would ensue. Because you don't have to be a genius to know that without sympathetic action from other workers uh, and the confidence, the democratic confidence of uh, a ballot, the mining workforce would be divided and that division would be catastrophic. So all that was obvious. And I spelled it out from right from the start. Uh, the press and the Conservative Party, of course, naturally discounted all that. And it meant that uh, we were put to the sword politically, for the whole 12 months. Um, as an individual, I gave support to uh, members of my family who were engaged in the strike, and also, of course, to the community where the women's support groups organized and actually kept families alive um, with their daily soup kitchen and charity lunches um, this was the only source of sustenance for countless families uh, on the coalfields. And they even did things like ensure that in Christmas 1984, every miners' kid had some presents and some sweets. And it was organized brilliantly across all the coalfields 
including my own in South Wales. So I was always happy to donate anonymously um, because we know what kind of treatment would have been given to me and Glenis for putting money into supporting the miners. So that was all done in confidence. And all the time, I was trying, together with several trade union leaders, to secure a negotiated outcome that could have at least provided a score draw and given the miners some control over their, uh, their future. But Scargill was uh, such an egomaniac, with such deluded syndicalist politics, that uh, he sustained control of the National Union of Mine Workers, largely by not telling his colleagues on the National Executive Committee exactly what he was doing. As I said to him, in the wake of the strike, Arthur, you were quite historic. You were the only miners leader, the only trade union leader that I know who started off the strike with a big union and a small house and finished the strike with a big house and a tiny union. And that was the truth. It was a bloody disaster, unmitigated. And we're still paying the price decades later. Uh, certainly in those coal mining communities, the character of those people is demonstrated by the fact that they can still be described as communities at all because they suffered immensely from unemployment, from poverty, family breakup, delinquency of various kinds, drugs, all the usual plagues of chronic poverty, and the fact that they've survived is a testimony to the quality of those people. Neil, you mentioned that you had to wait a year, but finally the day came when you were going to unload with this party conference speech. Can you tell us how it was constructed, the writing process, uh, the days leading up? I had uh, the approach that I wanted to take sketched out in my mind for months, obviously, because I'd waited a year longer than I intended. In that year, there were further developments that were awful, but ended up assisting me. And the most important of those was that the Liverpool City Council, dominated by militant, had in its lack of wisdom adopted what they call the strategy, though that is a misuse of the word strategy, for not setting a rate, thereby becoming illegal in their operation, in the confidence as revolutionaries or certainly half-baked, self-appointed, crypto-Marxist, nonsensical revolutionaries they imagine themselves to be, or would provoke the government into appointing commissioners to run Liverpool, and there would be an upsurge of resentment against this undemocratic action, and Liverpool would become economically or financially secure, and the government would be humiliated, and the Liverpool tactic would be seen to be triumphant and would be embraced by other councils around the country. Of course, it was all pipe dream nonsense, but that's what they did. 
And it meant, of course, that when they fell into deficit, which is against the law, they started to embark upon redundancy programs for their employees. And the solid evidence for that came two weeks before the Labour Party conference. I was coming back from the Trade Union Congress conference in Blackpool. I had to change at Preston Station. There was a copy of the Liverpool Echo for that evening. It was the evening, the evening newspaper in uh, Lancashire. And I saw the front page that Liverpool had started to send out the redundancy notices. And I said to Charles Clark, who was my head of office, I've got the buggers. They really walked straight into it. And so that uh, made the basis of my speech in the conference a couple of weeks later. What I didn't do, of course, typically, is find the time in a very, very, very crowded schedule to sit down and write the damn speech. So, following my usual custom, I regret to say, I had to stay up all night on the Monday night of the Labour Party conference, which, for one reason or another, occurred every time that I did the lead, lead, leader's speech at the uh, Labour Party conference, stayed up all night and wrote the, the speech then. The best part of the speech, actually, is earlier than the bit that's renowned, and that is a part where I developed the idea, which had long been a hobby horse of mine, of the enabling state, the state as the servant of the people, under the feet of the people, not over their heads, to try to emphasize the reality that democratic socialism is not statism, it's using the collective power of the responsive and accountable state for individual well-being, which is pretty much what democratic socialism amounts to. And uh, I continue, frankly, uh, yeah, a little bit of narcissism, I, to be quite proud of that part of the speech. Um, and then when I made obvious yet again my credentials uh, as a socialist and the practicality of what we were putting forward, I turned to saying that what was necessary to bring these changes about was, of course, democratic power and the consent of the electorate. And ways to impede that were, and I went through a couple of things, and then gone, got to dogmatism and uh, that people sometimes mistake for uh, doctrine. Doctrine is a compass. Dogmatism is a damn great rock across <laughs> the path of progress. I didn't say that in the speech, but I made it obvious. That's what I thought. And then as an illustration of the stupid folly of dogmatism, I uh, launched into... Uh, Liverpool, without mentioning 
the city, but everybody knew what I was talking about. Well, but they walked out, didn't they, Neil? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, you had some Liverpool members walk out well, at the conference? I, what happened when I got to that part, they started to heckle. So, again, typical of me, I left this script where it was and just got stuck into them uh, without rehearsal or script. And... Uh, they were always the best parts of my speeches <laughs> when I left the damn notes behind. Anyway, um, I knew that I had to do it at the Lib Party conference where I could say it straight into their faces. It was no good putting it out as a press release or in some setting where they wouldn't be there. I knew where they were. I knew where they were sitting. And they got it right in the face. Um and they started to heckle, then they got up to shout. So I sent the second barrel into them, as it were. Uh, and then Eric Heffer, who was a Liverpool member of parliament who fancied himself as a, a scholastic Marxist, he was on the platform as a member of the National Executive Committee and got up and walked off the platform very dramatically, he hoped. Yeah. Actually, he walked into oblivion, but there you go. And I could see him out of the corner of my eye getting up and starting to move. And knowing him, I thought, oh, he's going to try and clout me. So I put my feet, I could remember doing it, slightly further apart and went on the balls of my feet, ready to move. But fortunately, he just walked straight past me. Because if he'd, um, if he'd made a gesture or come for me, then uh, I was ready for him. Anyway, <laughs> you, I went. you actually thought there, might have, you thought there might have even been a fight. <laughs> well, no, there wouldn't have been a fight. There would have been him attempting to hit me and him going down. There wouldn't have been a fight. Because <laughs> I, 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 I caught him out of the corner of my eye, you know. Anyway, and as anybody who's been unfortunate enough to be in that kind of situation knows, a split second of warning is worth a hell of a lot in those circumstances. Anyway, the great thing is, it didn't happen. So that was wonderful. And he just walked off the platform, uh, shouting and bawling, in the general tumult. Um, a couple of people amongst the sensible left started to get up and applaud on, on their feet. And then eventually, within about... Uh, 10 seconds, I guess. I don't know how long it was. Uh, pretty much the whole audience was on their feet applauding. It was a real balancing act, the speech. I mean, you mentioned the job at the front of the speech, which is to do what I guess any opposition leader has to do, which is to point out where the government is going wrong. And, and you mentioned the 333 weeks of Mrs. Thatcher's government and what's gone wrong. And you've, you talk about the inaction and the insensitivity. Um, you talk about them not being a party of freedom and not being a party of small government. And, and that's the kind of lead in, I guess that's, that's a traditional opposition leaders type speech. But what is interesting, I think, to the modern era is just how socialist the speech is the call for change and for a different society and the word socialism and these are it's a word that you heard in 1985 that you you don't hear in 2021 and so 
even though the speech gets remembered for kind of the way that you give it to the Marxists, it's quite a social speech. Yeah, sure. I, I am a socialist. Um, I have been since I was a kid, and everything that I've witnessed has made my beliefs more profound, and I'm glad to say uh, more pragmatic and practical. And the extraordinary thing is, of course, that in the midst of this coronavirus tragedy, even the Tory government of, of ideologues has had to adopt uh, a range of policies that in any other time would be denounced by the very same people as socialism. And basically all it all is boiled down to is the fact that with the community under threat, the community had to be the main means of addressing, contradicting, and I hope overcoming this appalling threat. And people had to put extra value on collective security and collective action. And of course, the most effective of all of the instruments of tackling the coronavirus has been the National Health Service, which by anybody's measure, regardless of other claims to uh, proprietorship, the Tories speak of our National Health Service, despite the fact that they voted against its foundation. There's <laughs> a rich irony in that. But... Uh, the NHS is practical democratic socialism in action, despite the cuts and uh, the distortions by the market system and God knows what else, the fundamental provision of treatment on the basis of need, at time of need, without any form of charge, uh, that is... Uh, not only the practice, but the spirit of the National Health Service. And if anybody wants an, an illustration of how collective community insecurities, and God knows there are enough of them, even without coronavirus, how those perils, dangers, menaces, uh, and the opportunities of change can be addressed, um, they need look no further than the collective community model of the National Health Service. Obviously, it requires development and application in other industries and services, but as a way of organizing civilized and productive society, nobody's come up with a better idea. So, if you're going to, if you're going to describe a structure of a political speech of this type. You go in saying what they're doing and why it's wrong. What, what's the next step? All right. Um, okay. <laughs> You're asking me to describe what usually happened to me by accident rather than design. <laughs> Maybe. Um, I, okay. Um, for a major speech like that, that is intended to have breadth because it's an annual speech, a State of the Union, if you like, speech, uh, you start off by saying 
what's going wrong with those you're against. If you are in government, you start without too much self-praise by saying what's going right as a consequence of what you're doing or trying to do. Uh, then you move on to saying what the main challenges still are. Either the main challenges that exist because of the bad things that your opponents are doing, or the main challenges that continue despite the efforts you are making. And then, usually the best course is to pick one or two areas, maybe a couple more, to illustrate, first of all, the need for action, and then the means of action. You've got to, by that time, without too much ado, have got down to practicality. So what do we do about it? And to address, generally, those areas of concern which are most predominant uh, in contemporary society, in the public mind. Um, and of course, if you can go through this and get fairly rapidly to the what do we do part uh, with a couple of jokes, uh, then so much the better, because they're not there really to entertain. They're there to give confidence to the audience that you want to bring them in, you're sufficiently concerned about their opinion uh, to want to make them smile as well as draw a tear or two. And so that is the method of delivery. After you've said what we're going to do, you finish off by showing that these ambitions for improvement and change are part of a coherent purpose in uh, guiding society in the present and future. Uh, because you've got to make it apparent that you profoundly believe that the future belongs to those who prepare for it, and that the efforts you are making and the party is making are absolutely vital components of that preparation for an improved and productive civilized future. And that's about it, really. Um, sometimes you round off with uh, a bit of genuinely great poetry. Um, yeah. uh, sometimes with a bit of your own poetry, if you like, which you don't announce as such. And then you stand back and just hope to God that they're going to applaud you. <laughs> and so you come you come to the end and you give the very famous, you know, we know that power without principles is ruthless, sour, empty, vicious, and we know that principle without power is idle sterility. Is that the poetry bit, Neil? I guess so, yes. I, and I, I, it comes out like that because my method of speech writing, if you can call it a method of any description, was to stomp around a hotel bedroom, uh, speaking out loud, and then wonderful people who worked with me, who were the fastest typists in the whole universe, belting it down on the machine, and then 
I guess I'd stop when I run out of words, have a look at it. Uh, they'd print it off. I'd scribble hell out of it. Maybe you only be left with two words or something. And then carry on ramping. And so they used to take it in turns to uh, sleep and type. Uh, and then I'd want the odd fact checked or something. And so uh, one of the others from my team would be in there and go off to look at the reference book. I wish to God we'd had Google and Wiki then. Oh, life would have been so <laughs> much easier. Anyway, they, they were marvelous. And uh, they all went on to have terrific careers. They were marvelous young people, and they were all young people. And they were just an absolutely great bunch who gave me their lives, uh, which is why I was so anxious that they would flourish in the future. And I'm very proud to say they all have. It's never a big team. I, our total office, including people who answered correspondence and so on, was never bigger than about 14. Now people have hundreds, but I don't know if that really improves the standard. Um, um, my people were absolutely heaven sent. They were wonderful. And why do you think the speech is famous? Like Even just for someone like me here in Melbourne, you know, I'm not really across the minutiae of, of internal Labor Party politics or even the minor strike of 1984. I think the, the speech exists as a brilliant statement of compromise. You know, a, a person of socialist principle speaking to people of more radical Marxist beliefs about how we can win. That's why I think it's, a, it's sort of, to me, it, it's this great, practical political statement uh, well, hopefully that that's how it comes through to others uh, the great breadth of the labor movement thank god or whoever else is responsible embraced what i was saying and doing in that fashion with very productive results uh, i mean uh, tragically uh, for the country i think it uh, didn't result in our victory in 87, we, we cut the Tory majority, but not as radically as I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to take 42 seats of them to put ourselves in a position to win in the second innings, as it were. Uh, we actually won 21. The other 21 seats that we really wanted, I think 18 of them had majorities of less than 1,000. So we came, we came down close. And then 92, we did better, but not well enough. We'd cut a Tory majority of 102 down to 21. And the bottom 11 Tory seats had uh, a combined majority <laughs> of 1,240 votes. So that's how much we lost the general election by, with 25 million people voting. And so we came close, but close isn't good enough. So we got beaten, and uh, I resigned. I announced my resignation uh, within two days, and then I left uh, a couple of months later when there'd been time to elect the new leader, John Smith. Um, Tony Blair and others were kind enough to say when we had that 
monumental victory in 97 that uh, a large part of it was down to me. I guess what I did, well, it gets summed up by the term, Kinnock made the party electable, uh, and then I always add, but Blair got it elected. There is a hell of a difference. And I suppose <laughs> that really sums it all up. And does it hurt? Does it hurt to no. not have won those elections and to go through life as, you know, people saying, well, you know, she had it over you and she won and, you know, is, does, it, does it affect you? No, no. Um, I mean, it, I wouldn't be a human being if I hadn't thought when I saw Tony on that beautiful sunlit morning going into Downing Street, that damn that could have been me. But that lasted for seconds, not even minutes, simply because uh, a grown-up can't, can't live like that. So I just absolutely rejoiced at our victory because Tony was my friend and some people would say one of my results, together with Gordon Brown and some other great youngsters that I was fortunate to be able to put into my team, I, I was ecstatic that uh, he'd won. So, you know, that I didn't feel any kind of sourness, I'm very relieved to say, at all. The other thing that gave me joy <laughs> was the fact that we played a huge part in getting rid of Margaret Thatcher because um, certainly hubris overtook her. She made stupid errors over our relationship with the European Union, which alienated part of the Conservative Parliamentary Party. And she introduced the poll tax, which was a devastating injustice. And she could never see why the public reaction would be what it was. But the bit that's missed out of some of the narratives is we had a poll lead over Thatcher of 12, 15, 17 points for months before she left. And we'd been winning by-elections, turning Tory majorities of 15,000 into late majorities of 3,000. And we'd swept the board in local authority elections and European Parliament elections. So my hope was that we could keep on wounding them, but that she'd stay in office. I wanted to get rid of her for the country's sake. I wanted her to stay there to provide us with the means of victory. And when she went, I said to my team, tonight, rejoice, drink and be merry. I intend to join you. But tomorrow, recognize we face a different enemy. And almost by accident, the, the Conservatives chose that nice Mr. Major. And he, he is a very pleasant chap, it has to be said, who had none of Thatcher's baggage, even though he'd been a cabinet minister and was complicit in her decisions. People thought that the change that they wanted and were desperate for had come and they could safely revert to voting conservative, which is what they did. Uh, and John Major won. Though in retrospect, whether he was glad about it, after a couple of years, I'm not very sure. Well, after a few months, because uh, our currency collapsed, 
we had to pull out of the exchange rate mechanism and all kinds of uh, ruinous damage to the Tories, in my view, false reputation for economic competence were in shreds. So we had a pretty miserable time. But I think I prefer a miserable time as Prime Minister than a happy time as former leader of the opposition. <laughs> it's interesting to hear you say that these speeches fell out of you or you wrote them the night before pacing around hotel rooms. I guess the image we have now is that there's a chief speechwriter that would work with someone as senior as a leader of the opposition. Um, was, was that ever your modus operandi? Couldn't do it. Um, I, I had marvellously talent, talented people in my team who wrote great speeches for other people, or certainly the people used, and were applauded. I just couldn't use other people's speeches. Um, when, <laughs> when I became a European commissioner a couple of years afterwards, and uh, thoroughly enjoyed myself, I found myself very fulfilled. It was great. Um, one of my team in the Directorate General, a German guy, lovely man, wrote, uh, when I was finishing as transport commissioner, wrote a very formal guide to Kinnock speechwriters, which was uproarious, including all my little foibles and objections to the use of particular words and sentence formations and God knows what. <laughs> Their morale, instead of dipping, because this fool was rewriting their speeches, started to take even more pride in their speeches. And the drafts got better and better, and it was great. And this, um, this guide to Kinnock's speechwriters that he wrote, I've, I've, I've got it up uh, in, uh, on the wall in my office. Your involvement with that European Commission, how has it, it been living through Brexit for someone like you? Oh, Brexit is an unmitigated disaster. Uh, I know why it happened. Indeed, I could see it coming by the time we got to 2016. But of course, people who voted for it, well, let me put it like this, uh, to quote myself really, but it's as neat a way as I know of explaining it. Some of the people who voted for Brexit wanted Britain out of the European Union at any cost. Many of the people who voted for Brexit thought that it would occur without any cost or indeed very little cost. And that was the division inside the pro-Brexit vote. There were people either because they were deluded or because they wanted to believe that membership of the European Union was the source of all evils, including, I don't know, burnt toast and measles, uh, to get out in any circumstances. And other people who really bought the line that we could depart from the single market, the customs union, the overwhelming trade with our nearest neighbors without it inflicting serious costs 
on our economy, on investment, on science and technology, on supply chains, on uh, inward funding. And we never really believed that these difficulties of which they were warned were going to come true or that they were exaggerated. And of course, they were never going to happen overnight or even over a year, though some of them are. It was always going to be corrosive. The difficulties were going to be gradually felt. The costs were going to gradually increase. And even three months in, or three months out, we've seen that occurring. Uh, it's not going to get better from that. And so, because of the impact on my country, uh, its standing, its prosperity, its tolerance, and the future for my children and grandchildren, I, I grieve, it's not too strong a word to use, at the decision that was made, and the illusions on which it was in so many ways based. Not because people were stupid, but because they were copiously misled for years and years and years. And even the smartest people can be misled. Neil, I hear those words tumble out of you still, and you're a member of the House of Lords. Is there a, does that scratch the political itch for you? Do you still find a joy in speaking about these issues and 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 being an orator do you still do you still find joy in that not really no i'm uh, throughout my life even though i've spent a hell of a lot of it making speeches i've always been quite glad when i've not had to make a speech um as far as the house of lords is concerned i couldn't be described as active mainly because in the last year or so i've had some uh, domestic preoccupations that I don't need to go into. Uh, but the House of Lords, even though I respect it as a depository of um, some really great expertise and some terrific rational people, it was never going to be my natural setting. And uh, I went there partly because I really did believe or what Robin Cook, the late and greatly lamented Robin Cook, said to me when I asked him, should I accept the offer? He said that um, if we were going to get change, it was going to be necessary to have people there who would argue for and vote for the change. So that was part of my reason, a substantial part of my reason for going. Unfortunately, the opportunities for change have lapsed greatly in the last decade or so when we've had a Tory government. Um, the only hope of change in any case is with a Labour government, and uh, we're not terribly near to that at the moment. So um, maybe, well, we'll see how things go, see how, how my preoccupations go. And, uh, I'm always glad to associate with some of the fine people who are there, but I could never have been described as an active, fastidious member of the Lords. Well, well Neil, it does, it does feel like the words tumble out of you, and you, you've really been acknowledged throughout as a natural speaker, so much so 
that I, I believe Joe Biden became a fan of his features in, in 1987. Is that right? That, that your footnote in American political history has become a whole lot brighter in the last couple of years, hey? Well, yes. I mean, I'm, I'm delighted that Joe is President of the United States. I felt safer the second that the conclusive result came in because uh, he really is a genuinely good man. There's no doubt at all about that. Uh, he'll make mistakes and so on, but they will be mistakes of accident, not deliberate travesties and disasters which characterized his immediate predecessor. Tell us about what happened. Yeah, Tell yeah. us what happened in 1987. Well, back in 1987, um, I, I made a speech in the Labour Party conference in Llandudno in North Wales, which was the first speech of the 87 general election campaign. And the audience, which of course was a Labour audience, was certainly receptive and attentive but I didn't feel that I ignited them. So I left the script and related to my own family experience and that of my wife, Glenis, who was a railway signalman's daughter, and like me, the first person or the first woman in her family. Her brother was, her elder brother was the first person in the family to go to university. And I used this as an illustration of why we needed the collective organization and support of the community to give us a platform so that we could fulfill ourselves and serve society, and that it wasn't the laziness, the stupidity of our forebears that had prevented them from doing it. It was the way in which they were denied opportunity and the way in which society was structured. And I asked the question rhetorically, why am I the first Kinnock in a thousand generations to go to university? Anyway, uh, we fought the election, uh, we lost it, and a couple of months later, I became aware that the speech, my speech, had been used by one of the candidates for the Democratic candidature in the United States. And it turned out there was Joe Biden. And I subsequently discovered what had happened was that Joe had used the speech several times. Why am I the first Joe Biden in a thousand generations, etc., etc., word for word, but always with acknowledgement, except on this one particular occasion, he'd been pushed for time, left out the attribution, it had been picked up by his rival campaigns and uh, they'd obviously gone public with it. He'd been accused of plagiarism and had to step down from the campaign. And that's what occurred. So uh, I didn't know Joe Biden. I knew he was a good guy on the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, but I didn't know him. So he came to see me in 1988. And we had a, quite a good laugh. He actually came to apologize. And I said, obviously, no apology was necessary. And he gave me some background to what had happened. And I completely understood why he'd spoken without attribution, 
on that occasion. Uh, and we went and had a very nice, memorable dinner with his son, Bo, and a couple of people from uh, my office. And we had a, a great night. And then years later, when I visited the Senate in Washington in my capacity as chair of the British Council, I went to see Joe. I went into his Senate office, and anybody who knows the Senate knows these are damn great offices with entrance lobbies. He met me in the entrance lobby, uh, held me back and called into his office, come here, folks, come here, folks, I want to tell you something. So his staff came out, and of course they have gigantic staffs uh, in the Senate, and he pulled me in and he said, folks, I want you to introduce to you my greatest ever speechwriter. Neil Kenneth. <laughs> I mean, a good laugh about that in a great afternoon. Um, and uh, he's the kind of guy I got on with instantly, and he, me, I think, and we retained a friendly relationship. He got Glennis and myself into the Obama-Biden uh, inauguration in 2009, which was very memorable. And I'm absolutely ecstatic that this guy is running the United States. It's a relief, isn't it? <laughs> he wasn't the only candidate that used my speeches, by the way. Uh, Who else? Well, others. Gary Hart, for one, did. But Gary always fastidiously made an attribution. A footnote on that is something Joe told me. Uh, he spoke at a corn bake in, I don't know, Iowa somewhere. And after he'd spoken and used the speech, with attribution, an old farmer in Dungarees came up to him and said, send Biden, that was a damn fine speech. <laughs> One of the best political speeches I ever heard. But I didn't know that Joe Kennex was into politics or that he was a labor man. And he got me confused <laughs> with a baseball star from the 1930s. So half a man that heard Joe making attribution of Kinnock would have thought that he was referring to a baseball star that played <laughs> against Babe Ruth in the 1930s. I mean, a lovely, lovely story, I think. Well, like any speechwriter, Neil, I do like a circular structure. And we began with cricket and your love of sport, and we can end with Americans uh, mistaking you for a 1930s baseball player. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me on the Speak Holler podcast. It really has been a pleasure. Yeah, great to talk to you. And uh, thanks for the opportunity to sound off a bit. Uh, it's very kind. Thank you. Speak Holler. Oh, what a great chat. And what a... Amazing thing that me sitting in a bedroom in Melbourne at one in the morning can just call up the leader of the opposition for 10 years in the UK and have a two-hour chat with him as he ate his lunch. It really is one of the miracles of the podcast age and the internet age. I just sent him an email to his House of Lords address and then Neil Kinnock didn't answer and so I sent his son an email to his parliamentary address and his son forwarded that email onto his dad and said answer this guy and so Neil Kinnock did and got back to me and within four days there you are speaking to a former leader of the opposition in the UK 
And we did finish off speaking about Joe Biden and the plagiarism scandal of 1987. Neil Kinnock said that it wasn't particularly a scandal to him, but merely one occasion on which Joe Biden failed to properly attribute. But the internet, of course, has the comparison clips, and I thought I'd play them side by side so you can just hear how close they were. And I started thinking as I was coming over here, why is it that Joe Biden is the first in his family ever to go to a university? Why am I the first Kinnock in a thousand generations to be able to get the university? Why is it that my wife, who's sitting out there in the audience, is the first in her family to ever go to college? Why is Glennis the first woman in her family in a thousand generations to be able to get the university? No, it's not because they weren't as smart. It's not because they didn't work as hard. It's because they didn't have a platform upon which to stand. Does anybody really think that they didn't get what we had because they didn't have the talent or the strength or the endurance or the commitment? Of course not. It was because there was no platform upon which they could stand. The last part of the podcast is the speech of the week. And what we do is have a feature speech at the end of the episode. And as I said, it is from the 1985 Labor Party Conference. And I have scoured the walls of the internet looking for full audio of this speech. I think regular listeners know that I love to play a full speech. I think the world is full of too much short form and that what Neil Kinnock created pacing that hotel room the night before the Labor Party conference should be heard in its entirety. But I can't find it in its entirety. So if you want to read it in its entirety, go to speakola.com and search in the search bar for Neil Kinnock. But I've got a small snippet that gets played and replayed. It is the bit which targets the militant faction, the far-left faction of the Labor Party. And it is the section of the speech that caused the walkout. And you have to imagine the walkout happening as the boos and whistles and cheers are going on. And it is an amazing speech, a brilliant speech in favour of democracy and in favour of moderation and electability. Here it is, Labor Party conference speech, Bournemouth, 1985, New We want to honour our undertakings in full, in every sphere, every area of policy. We want to say what we mean and mean what we say. We want to keep our promises. And because we want to do that, it is essential that we don't make false promises. A precondition to honouring those or any other undertakings that we give. That precondition is unavoidable, total, insurmountable, and it's a precondition, and in this movement we don't want to surmount. It is the precondition that we win a general election. That is the precondition. There are some in our movement who, when I say we must reach out in that fashion, accuse me of an obsession with electoral politics. There is no need in this task to surrender our socialism. There's no need to abandon or even try to hide 
I remind you, every one of you, of something that every single one of you said in the desperate days before June the 9th, 1983. You said to each other on the streets. You said to each other in the cars rushing around. You said to each other in the committee rooms. Elections are not won in weeks. They are won in years. That's what you said to each other. That's what you've got to remember. Not future weeks. Not future weeks, not future years. This year, implausible promises don't win victories. I'll tell you what happens with impossible promises. You start with far-fetched resolutions. They are then pickled into a rigid dogma, a code. And you go through the years sticking to that, outdated, misplaced, irrelevant to the real needs, and you end in the grotesque chaos of a Labour Council, a Labour Council hiring taxis to scuttle around the city, handing out redundancy notices to its own workers. How fulfilling the short-term egos. I tell you, and you listen. I'm telling you, you can't play politics with people's jobs and with people's services. not the people here, the voice of the real people with real needs is louder than all the booze that can be assembled. Understand that, please, comrades, in your socialism, in your commitment to those people. Understand it. The people will not, cannot abide posturing. They can't respect the gesture generals all the tendency tacticians. Comrades, it seems to me lately that some of our number become like sort of latter-day public school boys. It seems it matters not whether you won or lost, but how you played the game. We can't take that inspiration from William Kipling. Because I owe this party everything I've got, not the job, not being leader of the Labour Party, I owe this party every life chance I've had from the time I was a child. A life chance. The life chance of a comfortable home with working parents, people who had jobs. A life chance of moving out of a pest and dump infested set of rooms into a decent home built by a Labour Council under a Labour Government. The life chance of an education that went on for as long as I wanted to take it. Me and millions of others of my generation got all their chances from this movement. That's what, 
We've got to win. Not for our sakes, but really, truly, to deliver the British people from evil. Let's do it. Well, that's it. End of speech. Evil. Strong words, Neil. What a wonderful speech, and thank you so much, Neil, for giving up the time and being a guest on the Speaker Ola podcast. Thank you, Russell Jackson, for sending me an email saying, why don't you get Neil Kinnick? He might be available. Congratulations, Russell, too, on winning a Walkley Award and a Quill Award and all sorts of awards for your article on Robbie Muir. Thank you to Greenskin and Purpleskin Avocados, their website, greenskinavocados.com.au. If you also want to sponsor the show, I think we have room for one more sponsor, so get in touch, tony at tonywilson.com.au. All my books are up there at tonywilson.com.au as well, so have a look there. I think one of them's gone up on Storybox Library here in Australia, Bar Bar Blue Sheep. You can check that out at storyboxlibrary.com.au. It's been wonderful to have a British politics episode. If you've got a suggestion for a podcast guest, let me know as well. All the best. Speak well. Until next time.